This is The Sidebar for the week of October 6, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our mission is so much like it was from day one. It's let people see the process, that that's open to the public, for themselves from gavel to gavel, can be not exciting from time to time, but let them make up their own mind. This week is the 20th anniversary of C-SPAN Radio. To mark the occasion, our conversation with Brian Lamb, C-SPAN's co-founder and executive chairman, on the creation of the radio station, the evolution of C-SPAN, and the importance of our mission. Brian Lamb, at what point did you decide to put C-SPAN programming on radio? Well, Steve, we've been on the air with a radio station for 20 years, but the idea of putting what we do on radio started when I was about nine. And I say that only because radio is, is the magic, still to this day, is my magic medium. I mean, I love radio. I spent a lot of time during the daytime with it, and it was always kind of a dream to own a radio station. Back 35, 40 years ago, I tried to buy a radio station, which was one of the bigger mistakes I would have made. A little tiny town in Maine, it was $87,000, I stopped at the last minute because you'd have to go there and live and run the radio station or you'd lose your entire shirt and your suit uh, for that price and for what kind of money you could raise in the community. But it just seemed like that uh, with radio, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere uh, that it would be a perfect medium for content, long-form content like we do. And it's often been said that radio is the most visual medium. Would you agree with that? I would. You form a, a, a vision in your mind the second you turn on the radio, what somebody looks like, where they're sitting, what they're dressed like, uh, all of that. And it's usually wrong, but it doesn't matter. That's what you do. You're forced to think about that. More importantly, you're forced to listen. If you're going to have the radio on and they're talking, you listen. And it's different than television where often you're doing other things, you're looking away. Uh, People don't like to just sit for very long anymore, Uh, just sit and look at a screen of people talking. Uh, So radio is, it's a very good visual medium. So let's go back to the path for the development of C-SPAN radio and the network itself in the late 1970s. What what led you to create C-SPAN as a network and how did it all begin? Well, that's not very sophisticated. Uh, It was in an environment where we had very little uh, difference to the news that was on every night on television. And it's always around technology and money. Uh, Having technology to spread the kind of voices that uh, will give you choice and money. You have to have money to start something. Uh, It's easier today than it's ever been in history because of the Internet and websites and blogs and all that stuff. But uh, it took a long time to marry a new technology and enough money to make it start. So that happened because the cable television industry executives that started out, they weren't making any money at all, wanted programming. And the idea came to them in the middle of that environment. And a couple of people said, uh, I think that will work. And I think they thought it would work for a couple of reasons. One, nobody had ever done it. And two, they could do it for 
substantially lower amount of money than you would for an entertainment and sports network. And I know there are so many people involved in the creation of C-SPAN, but Bob Rosencrantz stands out. Why? Well, there are a lot of people. Bob Rosencrantz was the first guy to write a check back in 1978. Uh, there's a fellow named Bob Tish that never gets any credit, but I worked for him writing for a living uh, with Cablevision magazine, and Bob let me work half-time on creating this network. He was the first guy to really put money in the pot. Uh, and then there are all kinds of other people. We had 22 co-founders at the very beginning, and each one of them uh, owned cable systems, put money in a pot to get it started. But it was very small in the beginning, almost unnoticeable until it started because uh, people never thought anybody would watch the kind of thing that we do. As a matter of fact, we from the very day, <clears throat> cynical journalists called us watching grass growing, and they have kept that up for the last 40 years. I get it. I understand why. But it's interesting in a society that spends $4 trillion in their budget that we don't want to take the time to figure out what they're doing with our money. We, of course, just a short walk from Capitol Hill. Who made it happen on the Hill? I would give initial credit on the Hill to Congressman Lionel Van Derlin, a Democrat from San Diego. He had been a anchorman on a radio station, a television station, that actually transmitted out of Mexico into San Diego. And he was a fabulous person. I mean, he was just so much fun to know. He was funny. Uh, he was serious. He was actually very partisan when it came to issues like Social Security or all the substantive issues that you deal with. But he was nonpartisan when it came to communications. And it was often in the beginning a nonpartisan issue. He was the first to really listen to the idea that you could put the House of Representatives on television. And on the day that they voted, he went to the floor of the House. I had met with him in the morning. I was doing an article on uh, him, interviewing him for the Cablevision magazine. And that afternoon, unbeknownst to him or anybody else, they put television on the floor of the House for a vote. And he and I had just talked about it, and he went on and made a short speech. But basically the message was, you put the House on television members, and the cable television industry will carry it to the satellite and into the home. When C-SPAN first opened its doors in Roslyn, Virginia, take us back to 1979. What was that day like, and, and what were the facilities like? Well, actually, on the first day, we weren't in Roslyn, Virginia. On the very first day, uh, there were four employees. We had a tiny little office of about 500 square feet in Crystal City, which is close to the airport. Uh, and that first day, you could not watch C-SPAN anywhere in the Washington area except in Arlington, Virginia, which was the only place that had a cable system. And in that building, there was no cable. Uh, that very first day, of course, a lot of our board members came to town. They went up to Capitol Hill for a reception. And what I always will remember, Congressman Jack Brooks of Texas, who was chairman at one point of the Judiciary Committee, uh, we had asked him to come in and greet our board members. And our board members are all cable television operators. And he has a sense of humor, but to this day I do not know whether this was a sense of humor or whether he was serious. But he stood up in front of the group and said, today the House of Representatives goes on television. No thanks to you GD bastards. 
And I'm standing right there next to him thinking, oh, my God. It just went down the chute right here in front of my eyes. Why did he do it? And he didn't do it with a smile on his face. Uh, and, of course, after that was all over, the board members said to me, what was that all about? But I've seen so much of that over the years that it tends to roll off your back now because people, when they see an, an organization like C-SPAN, they first think it's the government. There's no government money in C-SPAN, and there never will be. And that's hard for them to understand. They thought in the early days that they controlled it. And this is a journalistic institution, very strong. We just happened to say we're going to carry the House of Representatives from gavel to gavel. It was our choice, our decision. We don't have a contract with the House, and we don't have a contract with the Senate. And it's really hard for people that live in Washington to understand that, or for that matter, anywhere in the country, because it looks from the outsider's point of view like it's owned by the government. Brian Lamb, did you have any sense back then, because cable was cutting-edge technology, that ultimately there would be three networks, this radio station and, of course, the web? Not really. The web wasn't even on the horizon. I knew that technology was going to change. We were a part of the significant change with the satellite and the cable systems marrying. Uh, I had no idea that we'd ever have a radio station. I wanted to think that it would be possible someday, but they were so expensive and when the radio station came along, we just kind of fell into it. it. It was not something that we didn't hire somebody to find a radio station on an ongoing basis. We did have to go to a consultant and say, we're interested. Keep your eye out for us if something comes available. And then all of a sudden, one day, there was a radio station uh, on the market. So tell us the story. How did it come about? Well, the University of the District of Columbia was in financial trouble. And they owned a radio station that did jazz. And they decided to sell their radio station. They needed $18 million in order to stay in business. And they were in real trouble. They put it on the market. People then bid. And as a matter of fact, uh, the C-SPAN board said, we'll let you spend $5 million on buying a radio station, a nonprofit radio station. We'll do public affairs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No one's ever done that on radio. And uh, that's it. So we got into the process, we bid for it, and we came in third. The owners of the radio station from the very beginning was Salem Broadcasting. And Salem Broadcasting is a for-profit company. It's religious-based. They do both religious programming on some of the radio stations and regular talk, conservative talk radio on other radio stations. In Washington, there are two of them, and we can listen to either one of those if you're, if you're interested. Right out of the box, and I have to be careful with this because there's no written proof in front of me, but the people associated with National Public Radio didn't like the idea that these nonprofit allocated channels on radio were going to be used for politics for instead of for public radio stations. And so as they began sniffing around Capitol Hill, Salem decided, why do we want to go through this? Uh, we're not, they're not controversial, they're not a lightning rod. And so they came to us and they said, if you'll buy this radio station for what we paid for it, which, by the way, was a huge swallow when I heard what they had to pay for it, uh, you can have it. And it was $13 million. So we took it back to the board of directors, and not much to my surprise, but it, I guess it really was a surprise, they, they voted, let's go for it. 
It's a radio station in the nation's capital. It covers some 6 million people. Uh, this is a very heavily uh, automobile communicate, uh, commute city, and it'll just extend our brand and give people who are involved in the process here a chance to listen to it. That's how it happened, and it was that simple. Uh, you know, we all thought we had died and gone to heaven because it was just an extension early, 20 years ago, uh, the, and the Internet was just starting up. We had no foothold in that, although we were there, but this really was exciting. And if you think about it, these are cable executives going to a new medium. It's a giveaway. The cable executives have acted all through the years. It's not perfect because I don't want people to, when they're listening say, oh, <clears throat> that's a gee whiz kind of moment. They have been very good about the civic responsibility. And I'd say over the years we've probably had as many as two to 300 members of our board um, it used to be a much larger board because the industry's consolidated. And every time at the moment you need the support in order to keep going and keep going with something that they don't make any money off of, they said yes. It's been, you know, this is really going to sound hokey, but it's almost like watching Independence Hall at the beginning of this country and all the compromising that went on. You would watch these mostly men sit in a room uh, their money was on the line. Again, no ads, no personalities, uh, and, and no ratings, <clears throat> and no return, no direct return. Say at every time, yes, we'll put all of what C-SPAN does on the web and stream it free. Yes, we'll put a radio station in Washington that does public affairs 24 hours a day. It's really something. It hasn't gotten the kind of attention uh, that it deserves because – Business people uh, often don't give back until they've made their money, and then we all know, we see it <clears throat> in the public. They give lots and lots of money away after they've made it uh, because there's not much else to do with it. And I have to ask you because I remember when UDC sold the radio station, part of the debate included whether or not C-SPAN Radio would play jazz. Actually, I was called the chairman of the Federal Communication Commission, Reed Hunt's office, for a confab with lawyers that were trying to save jazz and members of his staff. It was, I think I remember about 12 people in the room. And it was an interesting moment because the chairman said to me, can't you somehow marry jazz and public affairs? And I was actually beside myself. It made absolutely no sense whatsoever. And I decided right then and there, I was just going to say it as strongly as possible. We will never have jazz on C-SPAN radio because it is a public affairs channel. And the interesting thing was the public affairs channel didn't exist on radio. Yes, public radio does all things considered in Morning Edition and they're great shows and all that. <clears throat> and they do other public affairs shows. But there's no place else that it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the fact that now... We have an application, an app, that you can hear for radio streams or for audio streams is beyond belief for me because I grew up working at a small radio station in Lafayette, Indiana, and that was my dream job. And today I can walk around with my phone in my pocket and listen to four different uh, streams of, of discussion going on about politics in Washington. And as everybody knows that's watching this, there's all kinds of 
hundreds of thousands of other things available today with this technology. But the app really has changed so much. Changed everything. I mean, you can listen to any radio station in the country, anywhere you want to go. And as a kid growing up, our main centers of radio for uh, living in a small town uh, were three places, Chicago, Indianapolis, and of all things, Nashville. Nashville had some great radios, great music. WLAC, uh, they were, it was owned by an insurance company, but they played music and they were sponsored by Randy's Record Shop and Buckley's Record Shop. <laughs> and you could buy records by calling them and say, you know, now it's done on the internet. <clears throat> and when I was a kid in high school, we used to listen to, because it had music that we couldn't get locally. I mean, we, you could get it, but we didn't. It was <clears throat> often um, black music which was the backbone of so much of rock and roll. It was, and you'd listen to the personalities, and it was just fantastic. And So I grew up listening to Nashville Radio, Indianapolis, because it was 60 miles away, and Chicago, 125 miles away, because in Chicago you had the big-time talk shows. And you'd have, and I used to go up there. I'd get on the train and ride up to Chicago and sit in the audience for the Jack uh, Eigen show. And, and it was it was just fantastic. You could sit there and watch him talk to all these funny people. And Bob Elson used to be a, uh, they're not funny people. They were interesting people, but Bob Elson used to do play by play for the White Sox. And he had a talk show that he did from one of the ambassador hotels and then go over there and watch that. You know, Steve, that if you're into radio, there's nothing like it. You can't explain it to people because there are a lot of people today that don't listen to radio unless they're in their cars. I listen to it all day and, all night, and I love it. And uh, but <clears throat> growing up, it was the number one thing that I was interested in. So, with today's technology, you—if you're not informed, it's your fault, not anybody else's. One personal question: because you started in radio, when and how? Mm, I built a crystal. Th these are so similar uh, stories to people in the business. I built a crystal radio set when I was nine. So that I could, my mother want, didn't want me to listen to the radio when I went to bed, but I built this little crystal radio set and could listen to it, put it under the covers, and she didn't know it was there. And What, what yeah. was that? It, you, you can build, you still build them to this day. It just picks up one channel, and it didn't cost it. I had a piece of plywood and a little piece of crystal and a little filigree, and you got the channel, and it was the local radio station, and a little earphone, and you're, you were in business back then. I then, probably by age 12 or 13, went out to the local radio station, literally walked up to the window, knocked on the window with a disc jockey sitting in there and said, can I come in? And I went in, and then I, I was so, I can still remember the guy at the, on the board was a guy named Jim Mathis. He's probably long gone. I hope not, but he was older. I asked him if I could cue a record up, and he let me cue a record up when I was like 13. But going to high school, I did radio in high school. We did a Jefferson High School did a three times a week five minute radio show, and I got involved in that. Then I went to work at age seventeen for the local WASK radio station, and spent oh five six years in and out of there doing disc jockey shows and interviews and all that kind of stuff. That's where I started. C-SPAN Radio goes on the air October of nineteen ninety seven. You got to figure out some programming. So let me ask you about a couple of ideas that are now the staple of this network. First of all, the Sunday shows. Uh, the Sunday shows appeal 
to most people who are deeply interested in information about politics. Their audiences aren't enormous. There's three million a Sunday for each of those programs. Fox gets about a million and a half. They repeat them now, so it's a bigger audience. But in a country of 325 million people, those are relatively small audiences. But if you're plugged into politics, you're watching those shows. I picked up the phone and called Tim Russert, the late Tim Russert, and said, um, Tim, is there any way that we could get Meet the Press to repeat after the program runs on Sunday morning in our afternoon time period on C-SPAN radio? And Tim, I got such a kick out. I mean, Tim was, as you know, everybody's friend, and a lot of people admired him. He was very successful. He called me back in about two weeks. He said, done deal. Done deal. And I picked up the phone and called Cokie Roberts. Uh, at the time, I think it was Tony Snow. I'm not sure it was. Uh, Wolf Blitzer did the Sunday show at that point. And uh, over at uh, CBS, my mind is blank. At the Bob moment. Schieffer. Uh, it probably was Bob Schieffer. But anyway, I said, Tim has agreed to let us have those shows. How about you? Every one of them immediately said, done. We had five shows every Sunday, starting at noon, ending at five roughly in the afternoon. CNN, uh, Fox, MSN, I mean, uh, C, uh, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And for some people, not everybody, this is the greatest way in the world to catch all that information is you're out and about in the car on Sundays. And you can uh, listen to it. You listen to them on the, with the radio app, and it keeps you in touch. I do it every Sunday just so I know the flavor of what they're talking about and all that. Uh, but that was the – and Tim had an unusual view of what we did. He supported this network earlier than anybody else that worked for the commercial networks. Pat on the back, great job you're doing, love what you do. But if you know his background, having worked for Mario Cuomo as his uh, top aide, having worked uh, for Pat Moynihan over in the Senate uh, – he was of the system. And so even though he had, was working for a big network like that, he saw the value. And now we're not the only ones that do this. It's across the dial you find all kinds of people repeating these shows. So it's good for all of us, and it's a public service, and it fits into uh, what our mission is. And if I'm correct, that was just a handshake with Tim Russert. No contracts, just over the phone. Let's do it. Not only was it that, but Tim said, why don't we both just write a letter to each other laying down that we've agreed to do this? Because, and I'm going to get in trouble on this one, if we go to the lawyers on this, it might be six years before we are able to do this. And there hasn't been a peep out of the network since then. And I hope now that uh, somebody might be hearing this, uh, they realize that it's successful. They haven't lost a thing. It's enhanced what they're doing. And uh, I suspect that uh, they would consider it as valuable as we do. And, of course, Tim Russert came on this network before he even appeared on NBC. Yeah, Tim, Tim was a unique person. He understood politics and he understood the media. And he understood the value of both sides being heard, even though he had come from a partisan side. And he worked very hard to make that happen. It's, you know, today's media watchers are very divided on what bias is. And often people who feel so strongly can't see bias even when it's on their side. And Tim was capable of seeing both sides or extracting both sides 
uh, all through his career and showed everybody else how they could do it. Another staple of this network, hearing from our viewers and listeners. How did that come about? Because you did it before even Larry King did it. Not really. No, not true. Like, on Larry, TV. On TV, yeah. We were the first ones here at C-SPAN to do uh, call-in shows. Um, it just seemed like a natural thing for a network like ours to do. Television and radio, mostly television, though, grew up in this country making a lot of money only having three, four, five sources for everybody on a daily basis. And people who run them, who ran them at the time uh, and owned them, sat up in New York City and never, ever had to hear from the public. The only thing that mattered were the ratings. You never had to hear their voices. You didn't have to read their letters. And it seemed like a natural for our place. We, you know, we've always been tiny. We only have 269 employees. We have a small budget of... Uh, close to $70 million a year, and we've never changed our mission, and we're not after eyeballs for advertisers. So the thing it seemed that would be important to do is listen to the public talk. 70% of the people that tune into C-SPAN don't care about talk shows. They're not interested in listening to the public. That's fine. They can go somewhere else. We have three networks. They don't have to watch it. But that 30%, if you want to hear what the United States population thinks from all different angles, from all different races and creeds, we're the place you can hear it. If you have the patience to listen to it, the voices are here, and people on all sides are, are participating. So if you're watching and listening, you're getting, other than your point of view, fed back to you. I cannot tell you how often people have said, I'm driving in the car on a Saturday afternoon, I pull in the driveway, and I can't leave because I'm listening to Lyndon Johnson and the recordings. How did that come about, and, and, and what do you think we have learned from the LBJ tapes? One of the greatest sources of civic education ever, ever available to the public, and credit for that goes to Lady Bird Johnson. The plan after he had recorded himself in the Oval Office was to release it some 50 years after he died. And for whatever reason, and I've really never gotten the absolute straight answer on this, she decided to let the tapes go. And I think 10,000 conversations, uh, we've put them all on the air here on our radio station. When it first came out, it was almost, um, I don't know what the cliche would be, but it was, uh, it was very popular because, especially from people in this town, because you had never heard, other than the, the John Kennedy tapes had been out, but you, hard to hear. You'd never heard this kind of thing before, uh, where Lyndon Johnson, who controlled the, the volume on it, controlled the whether it was on or off, talked to all the leaders in this town. and He knew it was there. Nobody else did. One of my probably biggest surprises when I, I did the last interview with uh, Lady Bird Johnson um, before she stopped doing television interviews, and it was my first question to her. Did you know that you were being taped when you talked to your husband uh, in private conversations when you were in the White House, and she said no. And I think if you go back with that knowledge and listen to their conversations, it's fascinating. She comes out, she comes out pretty strong in all this. Uh, as you know, she's political in, in, in the sense that she knew exactly uh, what it took to get elected and all that. But she would tell him some very strong things. I think people were surprised at, and she comes out as being a rather truthful person. A civic education, also some real insight into one of the, the black stains of the 1960s, the Vietnam War. 
there are conversations from Richard Russell to Bobby Kennedy uh, to Dean Birch. I'm Dean Birch. Dean Birch was the head of the FCC. He was a Republican. Uh, Dean Rusk and lots and lots of other people. Uh, it, critical stuff uh, because President Johnson, uh, whether you love him or hate him, was struggling as anybody would at that time. American men and women were dying in Vietnam. We lost 58,000. People couldn't quite figure out what this was all about. And as time went by, he was getting more and more frustrated because of what people were saying to him. I mean, there were people in his own government that were telling him we were winning when they knew we weren't. He would say we were winning when we weren't. And it was one of the great missteps, certainly in my lifetime, uh, where it began a process of people saying the government's not telling me the truth. But during John F. Kennedy's years, there was a man by the name of Arthur Sylvester, who was an assistant secretary of defense for public affairs. I happened to have worked in his office, not for him directly, but as a Navy uh, lieutenant junior grade. And Arthur Sylvester made the statement that the government has a right to lie. And he never caught up with that. I mean, for the, he was a, in the newspaper business. He had come from Newark and had run a newspaper. And the press went crazy over that, even though the press knows exactly what he meant. Uh, and the government does have a right in the sense that if it's a security problem or our lives are on the line, uh, they can tell whatever you want to call it, lie, mistruth, uh, untruth, uh, to get us through the crisis, but uh, you don't say it out loud. And uh, it's today uh, a tremendous number of Americans don't trust what their government tells them, no matter what side it's on. You did a number of conversations with former President Richard Nixon. Did you ever ask him about the recording devices in the White House? Did not. But we run them on our radio station, and he would record his telephone conversations, not all of them. That They're fascinating. His conversations with uh, Henry Kissinger, I can still hear him. Uh, listening to him talk to his different aides and the aides going out of their way to tell him how marvelous his speech was that night, even though it may not have been marvelous at all. But listening to the unctuous nature of the whole thing is another treat though, for those people who are interested in civic affairs. And I doubt if we're, you know, we, we had the email saying, but it wasn't quite the same as being able to hear people's voice, and it'll be interesting if we are ever able to do this again. I would think at some point, if I were in the White House, you'd tighten things up a little bit. I want to go back to the founding of C-SPAN in Roslyn, Virginia. As you look around today, since the network began and 20 years after radio went on the air, what do you see here, the physical uh, layout of the C-SPAN network? Well, we're tiny. Uh, we have first-class equipment, which, believe me, in the early days we didn't. Um, and, uh, we're, you know, I was thinking about the other day in, if, if, when 1979, when the television network started, if I went back the number of years that I've been associated with this, I would have had to go back to 1937 and in 1937, World War II hadn't happened. So we're talking about a massive number of years in people's lives, 40 years. Our mission is so much like it was from day one. It's let people see the process that, that's open to the public for themselves from gavel to gavel. can be not exciting from time to time, but let them make up their own mind. And I think as the last 40 years have gone by, 
what's happened is that people now realize that they have all the tools that they need in order to have the information that they might be interested in. And it's their responsibility, as I said earlier, to make up their own mind instead of sitting there and listening to any network tell them what to think. And that's the other thing that's been a massive change is that you now have angry people on a day-to-day basis on these networks emoting all the time about news stories. Oh, that's horrible. Oh, that's shocking. That's frustrating. You would never do that when you were in Journalism 101 or when this network started. And you must get that a lot because people know who you are. No. Actually, as time's gone by, I used to be a lot more visible. Um, They forget you very quickly. And they should. We should not be. There's nothing special about people that work in television. Uh, Sometimes they think they're special, but we're just in front of them. We're in their homes, and there's really nothing special. It's not like we're Mensa candidates. Uh, We're just trying to move information from what we've been able to gather to them. And so I get very little personal reaction like I used to when we were one of 30 networks. We're now one of hundreds of thousands of streams of millions of streams of information and so that the good news is that's changing and it ought to change even farther than it has in my opinion brian lamb a couple of final questions first of all you talked about the app radio is on xm hd television where is this all going in terms of technology i have no idea it's just going to change 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 and whatever we think we're used to today those of us my age remember collier's look uh, Saturday Evening Post, uh, the New York World, I could keep going, the Indianapolis News, when I was growing up, they're all gone. I remember Studebaker and Nash Rambler and a lot of other things, they're all gone. It's going to change. The thing that I, I, I think a lot of people are frightened about uh, the future being a little chip that you might put under your skin and you Uh, in your hand that they're already talking about, some people are using it already, that works like a credit card does or like a security card where you just go up and you flash it and it's got all your information on that. And that seems to me, I mean, for somebody my age, I couldn't be less interested. You know, I don't need that convenience. Uh, But this is a different world. When you walk down the street, and I would say 50% of the people have their phones in their hand, looking at their phones, earphones in their ears, not paying a bit of attention. It's just a different world. And I sound like my father and my grandfather, you know, oh, it's not the same world I grew up in. That's really not my point for mentioning all this. You've got to roll with it. It's unstoppable. And where technology goes, you better follow it or you're going to be left out. But I have to say, in the early days of C-SPAN, I remember people saying to me, older people, I'm one of them. But older people saying to me, you know, I've got three channels on my television set. Young man, I don't need any more television. And that was a whole crowd out there in the early days when cable came along. And now you've got young people saying, I don't need that cable thing anymore. I'm just going to do my phone. I'm going to get online and all that stuff. So everybody is now watching another major revolution. And we have no idea, really no idea where it ends and what it will look like when it does end. Two final questions. First of all, I can't remember his name, but I know there was one person who was a role model for you growing up, who really helped you. He's passed away. I think 
gave the eulogy at his funeral, uh, William cites Fraser as an eraser, he would say. He was my high school broadcasting teacher. And I watched Bill, who became close friends, and, and I watched Bill also give up on the new technology. He was a radio guy through and through. He did television in the early, early days when there was one camera in the studio, black and white, and he would either read the news or give the weather. And as we came into being, I'm not sure that he ever really understood what, how we fit because Bill was an old-fashioned guy and he loved the radio business and he taught hundreds and hundreds of kids about radio and how you interview and the basics of all of that. And today those basics don't mean anything. They are not around anymore. Um, for instance, simple things like interviewing. He, he taught me that you're not the issue in an interview. Well, today that's completely different. They're paid millions of dollars to interview people, and they better perform or their contracts aren't going to be renewed. Being passive is not anybody's idea in the business today of being a good, quote-unquote, journalist. So Bill Fraser will always be a very important mentor to me, but so will Henry Rosenthal and Dick Shively and all the guys that hired me at television and radio stations in those days and let me do my thing. 20 years after C-SPAN Radio went on the air and now approaching... 40 years for C-SPAN television, gavel-to-gavel coverage of the House and the Senate, uh, Supreme Court oral arguments, gavel-to-gavel coverage of the conventions, long-form programming. Have we made a difference? Boy, don't know. Um, don't know. Uh, you can't... Uh, the thing that, even with young people, and most young people aren't very interested, I mean, I spend a lot of time in the classroom, as you do. Uh, they're not uninterested, but they're not drawn. They haven't got time. They really don't. I mean, if you're in college today or high school, you don't have time. Uh, once in a while, you'll run into the geek, and I would call myself one of those, somebody who really is interested in politics. And they take the time, and they know everything. I mean, they know everything about the system, and they are they get very excited about the fact that they can listen to this stuff and be ahead of everybody else. Uh, I have no idea whether we've made a difference. Uh, it makes some difference, but I th- what I was about to say is that no matter what, people, uh, teachers use this in the classroom, not all of them. Uh, you grow up in families where fathers and mothers may watch this channel and kids can't avoid it. Dad or mom will say, come in here and watch this. Uh, it's on the television set. When I was growing up, I never knew any idea what the House of Representatives looked like. Who knows? Uh, only thing we can do is keep our head down, stay on mission, and hope that it uh, helps people better understand how their $4 trillion a year is being spent. And you keep listening to C-SPAN Radio, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's just, well, it's not only fun. It's of great value to hear hearings, speeches people make getting more than just the sound bites and putting it in context. It's that simple. You know, we're lucky to be here. Brian Lamb, the co-founder of C-SPAN, chairman of the board. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. 
If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.